Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, and it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season four, episode five, and we're so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing John Carpenter's 1978 slasher horror film, Halloween. It was written by Deborah Hill and John Carpenter and directed by John Carpenter. It stars established British actor Donald Pleasance and a young American actress Jamie Lee Curtis in her first starring role. We're not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this recording and watch it first. Still here? Okay, let's get this morning started. After viewing Carpenter's 1976 film Assault on Precinct 13, film producer Erwin Yablins sought out Carpenter to direct a film for him about a psychotic killer that stalks babysitters. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) all right. Apparently, Yablins felt that this premise about babysitters getting slaughtered would create an impact similar to The Exorcist. What? Which was a massive success three years prior. Carpenter and producer and screenwriter Deborah Hill, who were dating at the time, began drafting a story originally titled The Babysitter Murders, but, as Carpenter told Entertainment Weekly, Yablins suggested setting the movie on Halloween night, so the film was simply titled Halloween instead. It only took Carpenter and Hill 10 days to write the first draft of the script. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and then I think about three weeks later the second and I think final draft was done. Wow, that's nuts. Yeah, so it didn't take very long at all. Deborah Hill wrote most of the female characters' dialogue, while Carpenter drafted Loomis's speeches on the soullessness of Michael Myers. Many script details were drawn from Carpenter's and Hill's adolescence. The name Laurie Strode was actually the name of one of Carpenter's old girlfriends. Oh, all right. <laughs> Carpenter and Hill paid homage to Alfred Hitchcock with two characters' names. Tommy Doyle, who's the little boy that the main character, Laurie Strode, babysits, his name is from Rear Window, and it's Detective Thomas J. Doyle. And Dr. Sam Loomis's name was taken from the character Sam Loomis from Psycho, and he's the boyfriend of Marion Crane, which, get this, everyone who doesn't maybe know this trivia, which is maybe one or two of you, (laughs) Jamie Lee Curtis is actually the real-life daughter of Janet Lee, who played Marion Crane in Psycho. Tradition. (laughs) The budget was only about... $300,000, so many of the actors wore their own clothes, and most of the props they bought were really cheap. Tommy Lee Wallace, who was the production designer, bought two $1.98 masks to test for the character of Michael Myers. One of them was a clown mask that was, like, stupid and boring, I guess. And the other one was a Star Trek mask made in the image of the character Captain Kirk, who was played by actor William Shatner. No, no. (laughs) When they decided to go with the Captain Kirk mask, 
Tommy Lee Wallace adjusted it to make it more spooky and unrecognizable. Yes. So he messed up its hair. He painted it white and he made the eye holes bigger. Okay. Because a lot of people have said like, oh, that looks nothing like William Shatner. Well, that's the idea. Exactly. (laughs) Although the film takes place in the fictional town of Haddonfield, Illinois, the movie was not made in the Midwest, but in Pasadena, California. And it was shot in 20 days. Wow. The real neighboring kids who lived in Pasadena dressed in Halloween costumes and played the background characters. And in some of the shots, you can see palm trees. I'm sorry if this ruins the magic for everyone. Everybody's going to be looking for it now, Gracie. (laughs) And they're going to be like, There's also fake leaves on the ground, which is really funny. And it's like so weird because none of the trees. Yeah, they're all green. I've always thought that. I'm like, is this just eternal summer with like, yeah. Exactly. Oh my God. It's like, look at those leaves that fell from the green trees. (laughs) Jeez, they fell off and then died. So Halloween was released on October 27th, 1978, and it grossed $47 million at the box office domestically and $23 million internationally for a total of $70 million worldwide. It became one of the most profitable independent films of all time. And that's kind of interesting because one thing that John Carpenter was concerned about was that in Europe... And in England, nobody really knows what Halloween is. It's That's an American tradition is Halloween. Oh, yeah, because they celebrate it a little bit differently, right? Is it? Yeah. When I lived in England, it was basically like a party kind of holiday where oh, like okay. the college kids would dress up and go to bars and stuff. Gotcha. But no one trick-or-treated from what I understand. Wow. Yeah. I just remember people in college would dress up and all, all the British kids were all dressed up, but like no, none of the kids celebrated it. It was more like a college An party. adult thing, yeah. Yeah, not okay. in, yeah, like that like 20-something kind of thing was like what people used to do. Weird. They don't let their kids walk around and knock on strangers' doors for free candy over there? That's just an American thing. <laughs> I mean... It's just a risky American thing. We're a pretty risky country. <laughs> So, uh, I am not surprised, to be honest with you. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Okay, so, it's safe to say that film critic Roger Ebert was a huge part of Halloween's huge success. He gave it a rare four-star review, saying, Halloween is an absolutely merciless thriller. A movie so violent and scary that, yes, I would compare it to Psycho. It's a terrifying and creepy film about what one of the characters calls evil personified. Wow. Now, for those of you who might not know, Roger Ebert was pretty merciless himself. Yeah. <laughs> and he was somebody who didn't usually give horror movies a good review. So Halloween is considered an influential film within the horror genre, largely responsible for the popularization of slasher films in the 1980s. And I mean, that's like Friday the 13th, The Nightmare on Elm Street. Carpenter and Deborah Hill basically started that whole trend. So with that said, Abby, could you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. In 1963, a young boy named Michael Myers brutally stabbed his sister to death on Halloween night and was sent away to an institution where he was supposed to spend the rest of his life. 
But 15 years later, he escapes and makes his way back to his hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois, where he committed the murder. His psychiatrist, Dr. Loomis, goes on the hunt for Michael, putting together the pieces of his past, which lead him back to Michael's childhood home. As the teens of Haddonfield prepare for their high school homecoming dance, Michael stalks a group of teenage girls, Lori, our main heroine, Annie, and Linda. He ends up murdering the girls along with one of their boyfriends, but he leaves Lori, the quote-unquote good girl, of the three for last. In an epic game of cat and mouse, Lori fends off Michael, and she's forced to hide in the closet and fashions a makeshift weapon out of a hanger, which she uses to stab him. Dr. Loomis shows up at the last minute as Lori is almost killed and shoots Michael. However, Michael's body disappears and he is nowhere to be found. I love it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. You are welcome. All right, so let's talk about the Bechdel test. Yes, it does pass. There are multiple women in this film with names who talk to each other about something other than a man. Although I did notice many of the conversations led into a conversation about either Michael Myers or somebody's boyfriend or about Tommy, who's a little boy Mm -hmm. who Lori babysits. Yeah. So let's also talk about Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No, which actually kind of surprised me. Okay, but this is pretty great. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? Yes. Yes. Deborah Hill, who is a saint, (laughs) she has a writing credit and a producing credit. She's also in the film. She plays young Michael Myers. What? uh, His hand. In the POV shots. So that's her looking at her own. (laughs) I can't stand that scene. I can't either. Where he's like, look, he's like, I'm stabbing somebody. Look at my hand stabbing. Like, what the heck? Like, we get it, Michael. (laughs) We get it. Can you imagine watching somebody look at their hand as they're stabbing someone? It's so weird. So she plays young Michael Myers in the POV shots. And she plays adult Michael Myers, weirdly enough, in one scene where he's like standing next to the neighboring house. Oh, yeah. And uh, this is at the 40-minute mark about, and this is when Tommy is kind of like, walking by the window, and mm-hmm. then he's like, <gasps> and he like quickly looks out the window, like through the blinds, and he sees a Michael Myers way in the back next to the house across the street, and that's her. Oh. So that's fun. Wow, that is wild. She also was the one who pushed to hire Jamie Lee Curtis because John Carpenter had another actress in mind and then she didn't want to do it. And then he was like, well, I still don't want to pick Jamie Lee Curtis. And Deborah Hill's like, she is Janet Lee's daughter, John. We should hire her. She also hired the cinematographer Dean Kundi, which I think is how you pronounce his last name. Mm-hmm. He became a really well-established cinematographer. He worked with John Carpenter on The Fog and Escape from New York and The Thing and Big Trouble in Little China. And he also did Back to the Future and Jurassic Park. What? Uh, Dean Kundi was like, this is a very independent film, like a small film, but I have a feeling my career is going to take off after this. She helped his career. It's amazing. She's amazing. That is amazing. She's amazing yes deborah hill (laughs) she also wrote one of my favorite lines in this whole entire movie yes tell me what um it's when michael is driving by in the car and he's like creeping on the three girls 
and they say something to him and he like stops and like pulls away really fast Mm -hmm. and i think annie says like there's nothing that i hate more than a guy with a car and no sense of humor or something (laughs) i love that so deborah hill is a dream come true she died unfortunately she died in 2005 Mm. but um her spirit lives on in halloween Okay, so back to Nancy's dream team test. Uh, Was there a final girl in the film who was a person of color? No. Everyone in this film is white. (laughs) And were there any openly LGBTQ characters in this film? No. So Randy Rasmussen uh, wrote the book Psycho, the Birds, and Halloween, the intimacy of horror in three classic films. And he says, quote, Perhaps trick-or-treat is Carpenter's wickedly playful nod to his audience. Halloween is a time of fun. Even the jack-o'-lantern at the beginning of the film has a goofy grin, rather than a menacing face. The soundtrack implies something sinister, though. Something not quite right behind the playful smile of the pumpkin. And that's the whole movie. The treat is the fun scares between friends, and the trick is Michael Myers. Mm. Yeah. I've actually kind of always wondered this because Halloween, before this film came out, I don't think was very prominent in horror films. Mm -hmm. Can you think of anything before Halloween, the movie, that had Halloween like in the the movie? The only thing I can think of is Arsenic and Old Lace. I was just going to say that. Yeah. And that was in the 30s or 40s, I think, when that film came out. I want to say it was like 43. Our Snake and Old Lace came out in 1944. Oh my god, I was one year off. <laughs> Dang! <laughs> if you guys can think of anything, let me know. But I think this was like a big deal. Yeah. That it was like this creepy kind of holiday, but it was like a kid holiday, I think. Mm-hmm. Because like, if you notice, like Lori and her friends aren't really that old. They're like 16, 17. Yeah. I don't know what kids do now, but I mean, I <laughs> trick-or-treated up until I was 17, mm-hmm. but that's just me. Actually, a lot of kids in our neighborhood do that, too. I think that that's kind of interesting that it was just a child's holiday when this film came out. And I think Tommy's pumpkin is a great metaphor for a simple and more gentle Halloween. Mm-hmm. So it's destroyed by the bullies in the film. Um, This is towards the beginning when Michael Myers first comes back into the town. And, you know, he's telling the bullies, like, leave me alone, leave me alone. And they're like, the boogeyman's going to get you because everyone in this town knows about Michael Myers and what happened. And they all call him the boogeyman. Yeah. So they push him and his pumpkin is destroyed. And it's the saddest (laughs) part. Listen, this is one of the saddest parts of a film and I have this thing where like weird things make me cry Aww. like one of them is when the dinosaur in Jurassic Park like roars at the end like yeah. the T-Rex yeah just makes me sob every time which is the weirdest freaking thing and I know it this is another weird thing that makes me cry <laughs> I start crying when his pumpkin gets destroyed oh my god <laughs> stupid but like you're like a sweet little empath oh, that's no it's too much <laughs> there's so many other things to cry about well, movies <laughs> pumpkins and movies make me cry but this is so interesting because this this pumpkin is like a symbol of everyone's innocence mm-hmm. to this town and this holiday and like the innocence of the boogeyman not actually being real yeah but he is real and he's terrifying and he's evil 
But I mean, it could also be too like the pumpkin is you see it sitting on the dresser in the bedroom where like the teenagers are having sex. So it's kind of like that foreshadowing of like what's going to happen to you for your bad behavior. Yeah, it's it is. It's like the pumpkins in the it's stone. It's like a calling card almost. Really are. Mm-hmm. <gasps> yes, because Michael shows up after the pumpkins destroyed and he like grabs one of the bullies mm. and gives them like a really mean stare down. Yeah. So another thing I want to talk about is like why Michael doesn't kill any of the children. And I think that this kind of goes back to it being a children's holiday. Yeah. He, I think, maybe connects with them in some way. It's like, especially Tommy and like those, that innocence was shattered on Halloween by him too when he saw his sister naked and like yeah. knew that she was having sex. Yeah. It was almost like he grew up in that moment and resented that. And that's why he killed her. Yeah. Which, Ooh. yeah. And I wonder if that's why he never really targets any of the kids. Because the kids get scared and they run away in the film, but, like, he never goes after them specifically. He always goes after, like, he's never stalking them except for Tommy in that moment Yeah, when Tommy's innocence is shattered. Right. And I wonder if he is just, like, sorry for him. Maybe. Also, too, like, it makes it even more terrifying that you don't know any of Michael's like backstory or why he really kills his sister it's so frightening because when you have like someone's backstory or like how they grew up or whatever it makes it easier for you to connect with them and maybe empathize with them a little bit right because like Jason kind of has that Mm -hmm. sort of story yeah he's bullied and then he's drowned yeah by the mean kids yeah this you have no idea why he does it no you're right so Mm. it's like it's as terrifying as any serial killer really it really is actually and i think that's one of the main reasons why this film did really well yeah you know even in psycho there's a motivation right there is there isn't one in this that is spelled out for us at least yeah Okay, Michael Myers, The Shape, is played by Nick Castle, who is returning as The Shape in the new film, which is going to be kind of fun. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about his weapon. Well, I kind of think that it's an extension of his, like himself. Mm-hmm. He is like penetrating his victim, so it might be like that misplaced sexual energy and frustration. Mm-hmm. Carol J. Clover, who wrote Men, Women, and Chainsaws, she brings that up, mm-hmm. how it's sort of like a penis. We talked about that in the Slumber Party Massacre episode, oh, yeah, too. because it's a drill. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, and that's, well, I mean, and she, the writer for Slumber Party, based that off of these films where yeah. these male killers are using penis-like weapons to yeah. kill people, and so that's why she used the drill, but... Yeah, that's a, that's kind of interesting because that sort of reminds me of like the danger that comes from within like domesticity and like family structure. Yeah. Okay. So suburbia has this really weird mythos of safety and stability, right? Mm-hmm. So according to the article Dreading the White Picket Fence, Domesticity and the American Horror Film, quote, A well-planned marketing campaign directed towards World War II veterans relied on the success of connecting the idea of security of the home, the warmth of the family, and a promising post-war future with the general idea of what post-war suburbia should be. 
In other words, a political and economic decision space was defined, precisely mapped out and equipped with all of the prerequisites necessary for the subsequent transformation into place. Suburbia, in a sense, is considered a badge of honor. That's why everyone talks about the white picket fence and moving into the home and having the toaster, the TV, I don't know. (laughs) The toaster and the vacuum and the The things. The vacuum and the things. (laughs) And the kitchen accessories, a.k.a. the butcher knife. There you go. So it's also interesting because it's something that people feel like they've earned, right? Yeah. And it's a part of the American dream. This is really wild because for women... Because marketing strategies not only made men think that they wanted to live in suburbia after fighting the war, but that women wanted to be there to keep the house and the family functioning correctly. Yeah. Unfortunately, making women submissive to the patriarchy. So the woman is now an object in the home, just like the kitchen knives and the vacuum and the TV or whatever, Mm -hmm. the microwave and They're like a piece of the structure for a male to enjoy. Well, that's probably where part of Michael's frustration comes in because his sister is supposed to be taking care of him and like babysitting him and she's off having sex and like making out with her boyfriend. So having a good time. Yeah. yeah, So Michael is being a little jerk and he's like, well, looks like I got to stab you now. (laughs) And stabs her with an item that's used in the home. He probably watched his mom chop some vegetables up for him earlier with that same knife. I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) But Lori also is so interesting because she finds refuge in the closet, Mm -hmm. which is a part of the home, right? And it's an extremely confining place and it's suggesting woman's the woman's further and more severe entrapment within the home so uh michael is like coming through the door and he's like trying to like stab her which this is one of my favorite scenes in the entire film it's shot so beautifully where she is in the corner of this closet oh which is also sort of like a place for children to find refuge when they are in abusive situations or Oh, my God. So that's just wild. So she's in this closet and Michael's trying to get in and he accidentally hits the light on so that you see him trying to get in and she has like nothing to help save her. Yeah. She dropped the knife earlier. Oh, my God. (sighs) Which Jamie Lee, I guess, was like, why the frick would she drop the knife? But anyway, so she dropped the knife and Michael is back. He has the knife and he's trying to stab her with it. She has no resources. So she takes a hanger, right, Mm -hmm. for which also kind of represents like doing laundry and like doing women's work kind of thing. And she alters it to fit her agenda. Yeah. And she stabs him in the eye. Yes. And she also she uses a knitting needle also (gasps) as like another weapon. Yes. So that and that's like another domestic. Yes. But that's kind of like how like modern feminism seems to work also it's like the more rules that males in society try to impose on females and like the more laws and regulations about our bodies the more we fight back and kind of turn the patriarchy on its head and when they feel like they backed us into a corner and they give us all of these regulations we just go ahead and stab them in the eyeball with some feminism Right. And so many people, oh my God, the whole thing about feminism and they're like, oh, it's about women who hate men. No, it's not. It's (laughs) literally about 
just equality. Yeah. Just want to have the same exact choices that you have. And that goes for men, too, who want to be stay-at-home dads or want to be stay-at-home, whatever. It's like, as long as there's a choice and there's, everyone's talking to each other, like, transparency, like... That's feminism. That's equality. Right. The fact that it takes place on a family or children's holiday is also Mm. like a very domestic thing. Yep. Even like Michael standing within the pure white sheets blowing in the autumn wind is so weirdly domestic, right? Like he's out there. It reminds me of like the American Gothic painting. Mm-hmm. It has those like same tones and that same kind of like vibe of like down home and just very simple. And then bam, there's Michael Myers just yeah. ruining your day. The other interesting thing to me, too, is that like Michael is returning home to quote unquote like claim his territory as Lori's father is preparing to sell the home to some interested buyers. So it's almost like he's guarding it and like he doesn't want to let go of that piece of his childhood that turned him into what he was like he can't escape or let go of those circumstances that made him that is so cool oh good morning nancy is proudly sponsored by recess coffee we wouldn't be able to create such great content without being fueled by their magical beans and the great part is is that each batch of coffee is locally artisanally roasted and it comes from fair trade farmers gracie what's your favorite blend Oh my gosh. Okay, so my favorite blend is the Westcott blend. It has African and Indonesian beans mixed to create a clean, rich, and full-bodied cup of coffee. Mm. It has a rich floral vanilla aroma with a sugared almond flavor and a lemon finish. Yum! Ooh, delicious. My favorite is the Austin's blend. It's a unique blend of African, Indonesian, and Central American beans roasted to create a characteristically rich, dark, and smoky cup. It has a bold roasted nut aroma with chocolate flavors and a smooth, fruity finish. The coffee is seriously so good. I don't even have to put any cream or sugar in it. I just drink it black like my soul. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So guys, head on over to recesscoffee.com to order yours today. Or if you're a Syracuse local, stop by either shop at 110 Harvard Place or 110 Montgomery Street. So drink coffee, shoot lightning. Now back to the show. Okay, so I want to quote Deborah Hill. She, because she's amazing. Because she's the best. <laughs> she said, I wanted a Midwest sleepy town. The idea of pulling off the veneer and seeing what lies beneath intrigued me. What's so interesting to me about horror movies is they take place in small towns where they don't have a huge police force. You put the story in a sleepy town, really beautiful homes, nice full trees, and it seems safe. Every town has a secret. Every town has that lore of something that went horribly wrong with it. Yes. And that's from the article, Consequence of Sounds, the Making of John Carpenter's Halloween. In every single town, like, there's always one. You shouldn't take anything face value, basically, is what she means by that. Right. So this actually fades really well into Lori Strode who was our final girl. Yes. And, you know, people say that she's the original Scream Queen in the movie Scream. Okay, so she's, like, very old-fashioned compared to her fellow schoolmates. And I guess Jamie Lee Curtis actually bought those clothes at JCPenney. So, like, she didn't already own those clothes. Interesting. Yeah. I'm not sure if that was a conscious choice for her. 
kind of figuring out her character or if that was something they were like, buy these types of clothes for Lori. Yeah. I mean, she eventually does change, but like in that, when we first meet her, she's wearing those really wacky tights and yeah, those they're shoes. they're like thick white tights. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like she's wearing... Loafers. She's wearing like loafers and the skirt and this like... Sweater. Sweater, thing. this huge sweater. She's very much different from them and she doesn't start wearing pants like the rest of the girls until she gets in Annie's car and reluctantly smokes a doobie. <laughs> Nice. And you kind of see her transition, maybe. I don't know. But yeah. she also carries like a hefty load of books, which kind of shows us that she's very matronly and she's very studious. And yeah. I, they say in the film, you know, like, oh, you must have a ton of money saved up from all the babysitting that you do. And somebody says, um, you know, oh, you should have a boyfriend or people, you know, whatever. And she goes, well, I'm, people think I'm too smart. She's a business bitch, basically, like with all her money. Yeah. And she's smart. And it's like, that's so very interesting and very much something that we still look at today. Like, you'll never find a boyfriend if you're these three things. I think that that's, it's obviously a lot better than it used to be, I feel like. But uh, Mm -hmm. there's still people who don't like smart women or women who make a lot of money or make more than what they make, men make. Well, it's just like in the film, they're intimidated by it. Mm -hmm. So the really funny thing is that I feel like Lori is also worried about the opinions of males in the film that she interacts with. She does seem like she's afraid of what they think of her. Yes, because she like she runs into that police officer on the street and she's like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Like she's so startled and she feels so bad. Apologetic for something that's doesn't need to be apologized. Right. And I think it ends up being is it Annie's father who is the officer bracket, I think is his name. Yeah. And she's like, oh, my God. Like, she's freaking out. She thinks that he can, like, smell the weed and stuff on her and that he thinks that she's, like, a bad kid or something like that. So she's kind of, like, sizing herself up, I guess, against these guys. Or she's not even, yeah, she's sort not sizing herself up, but sizing herself down. Right. Right. She'd be sizing herself down and thinking, like, I'm not worthy enough of your attention. Well, and also the only interaction that she has with her father is him asking her to do something for him. And there's no moms. I think you said said something about how there's no mothers in this film. Yeah, no. It's so strange to me. There's a lot of women in this, but none of them are, yeah, none of them are moms. I mean, these girls are like babysitting kids. What are these people doing on Halloween? That's what I'm wondering. Why are the kids at home being babysat and the parents are out like where are you going hey horror fiends it's mike from the horror junkies podcast a weekly podcast that discusses all things horror and gets weird while doing it i'm joined by my fellow hosts patrick george and dylan so join us every thursday as we dive into the darkness you can find our show on spotify itunes and stitcher And make sure you follow us on social media to get constant updates by searching at HorrorJunkiesFL. So, turn your lights down low, your headphones up, and stay weird. There are a lot of women, and they are sort of, they're assertive. Yeah. 
which is great. And that's what I guess Deborah Hill really wanted to do. And Tommy Lee Wallace, right, who was the set designer, he said Deborah herself was a very assertive woman and mm. there was no way she was going to have a weeping violet type as her heroine. Aw, that's awesome. Uh, that kind of transitions really well into like the final girl versus the killer, right? Mm-hmm. So we had mentioned earlier that, you know, Lori and Michael might both be victims of like the domestic life in like suburbia. Yeah. This is sort of like the revenge of the repressed. Yeah. Right? Where like yep. Lori and Michael are equals. And Lori even sings a dreamy love song, which was created by Jamie Lee and Deborah Hill for the scene. And it's in the beginning. I wish I had you all alone, just the two of us. And then all of a sudden, Michael like pops out behind her. <laughs> and it's like, yikes! Excellent. So it's sort of like a story about them both. Yeah. Uh, they're on opposite ends of the spectrum, but they're kind of going through parallel things. Because Michael is an outsider and Lori also kind of feels like an outsider. Right. And Carol J. Clover also said that the killer is not fully masculine, and so the final girl is not fully feminine. Yeah. I mean, Carpenter and Hill, like, they did this all unconsciously. Like, they've both said, we did not mean for this to be a social conversation. Like, we did not mean for people to have these types of conversations about, you know, Michael and Lori as these feminist kind of theory type characters or whatever, but... Which is kind of interesting, and that's... I feel like that's a common thing for John Carpenter's movies. He unconsciously creates... He did that ...political films, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where he was... he's When he said that thing about not having women in his cast and stuff like that, and it's like... He was like, oh, I didn't really mean to do it. Uh, so Deborah Hill actually said in the Consequence of Sound article, she was like, "I was. it was never a conscious decision. The people who mentioned that in reviews applied their own morality to it. Mm. I thought that they were being ridiculously introspective about a film <laughs> that was meant to have no social statements. Okay. <laughs> we wanted to make Lori a strong character who was very willful and feared nothing. Someone who was quiet yet defiant and faced the enemy. Lori had an inner strength you didn't see on the outside. Oh. Another interesting part of that, though, is like Lori stabs Michael with a hanger and they talk about it in um, Nightmares in the Red, White and Blue. Mm -hmm. And a few of the interviewees say that this is a release of Lori's like sexual frustration Mm -hmm. and her stabbing is the act of penetration. And as her personal space is being invaded by an outside force, she wants nothing to do with she's forging that sexual energy to defeat the perpetrator in a pure way while Michael is evil and he has a more powerful weapon that he uses to penetrate the victim. Her weapon is makeshift, but she like still inflicts enough damage to stop him in his tracks. So it's like what we were talking about, how Lori is like the very pure like protector version of Mm -hmm. michael yeah she has this inner strength and she can create right Mm -hmm. the the outcome that she wants through like the makeshift hanger rather than just taking something that already exists and using that to defend or to kill or whatever you mean to tell me that they didn't do that on purpose come on now (laughs) come on deborah hill i don't know i listen i feel like if they really wanted that recognition they would have been like 
oh yeah yeah <laughs> we definitely did that on purpose no we didn't but we did yeah they didn't they never admit that they did it on purpose they all were right, always right. like yeah what are you all talking about <laughs> that's what happens though when you put art out there into the world people look at flowers and they say is that a vulva <laughs> Yes, it is. So some feminist critics, according to historian Nicholas Rogers, have seen the slasher movie since Halloween as debasing women in as divisive a manner as hardcore pornography. And Carol J. Clover, she is a feminist scholar, and she argues that despite the violence against women in slasher films, women are actually the heroines. In in a world filled with Marvel movies where the main heroes are men, it's nice to have films about women defeating darkness yeah. in some way. Lori's a hero. Yeah, for sure. She's a superhero. Yeah. And Michael is very obviously a supervillain. I think that that criticism comes also from the victimization of Michael's sister because she is n- nude at the beginning of uh-huh. the film when she's being stabbed. Yeah. It probably wasn't necessary for her to be nude, but I think it has more to do with showing the audience that, like, Michael associated nudity with something bad, and that carried through into his adult years, so he starts stalking and killing these teens who are, like, partying and having sex and stuff like that. Yeah. But in a way, I feel like this might be a benefit to the world of feminism. Like, it sounds weird, but Michael is kind of that metaphor for the danger of male possessiveness, I guess. Yeah, that's and, true. Like, it shows the audience the dangers of domestic abuse, even if it's at the hand of, like, your sibling. Mm-hmm. So, and, but on the flip side, it applauds the bravery of women like Lori because she's willing to defend those who are helpless and she's a champion of the feminine self and she uses that to stand up to the toxicity of Michael and she breaks that cycle even you know even though it's temporary she destroys the evil right she lives to see another day to fight again kind of thing yeah and she kind of plays that protector and she's there to take care of the the village you know what i mean so it's a little bit primal too And she's disappointed that she doesn't get, like, she doesn't get in on the action that her friends do, but she also sacrifices herself and her time to protect the children. She's like like a lioness, sort of, yeah. (laughs) She does it without the help of a man until Dr. Loomis shows up and kills Michael. Right. And that's another thing that people commented on where they were like, well... I mean, Loomis comes in and saves her. Yes, but he even can't kill Michael because Michael disappears after he shoots him multiple times. It was also kind of his fault that Michael escaped anyway. Well, he kind of gave up on him. He did. (laughs) He was like, after eight years, I was like, there's no hope. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. But yeah, he's sort of like the wise man character that's Mm -hmm. in horror movies and... He he actually has nothing to do that entire film. Like, she was fighting so hard this entire film, and he's sitting by a bush scaring kids. Yeah, I know. Hey, get away get from her, there. Get the hell out of there. <laughs> it's like, what? 
And then he gets scared. And that kind of goes back to the whole like innocence of Halloween. We just want to go right back to the beginning with this is that everybody is kind of scaring everybody else in like kind of fun ways. And even that happens to him where he's like, he scares the kids, but then he's immediately scared by the sheriff when the hand touches his back. And um, that sheriff is a close talker. Can we just side note for a second? Like he is up in everybody's business. Jeez. Yeah. So, final thought. Yeah. Does the movie Halloween hold up after all of these years? Is it still scary? Mm, no. Mm. That's okay. <laughs> A lot of people do say that. That no, it it's still it's not scary anymore. But I'm also super desensitized at this point. So yes, that's a huge reason why I think yeah. we've seen so much worse that it's like. Okay, you know, mm-hmm. but I just, I gotta tell you that I watched this film and I couldn't sleep that night. Really? Yes. And that, I've, I mean, I've seen this movie a ton of times. I've seen it a lot. And I watched it a few days ago to prep for this episode. And when I finally went to bed, I couldn't sleep and I couldn't stop hearing weird noises. And I, was lying on my stomach and I kept feeling like somebody was standing right next to my bed and I kept turning my head to see who was behind me. Of course, nobody was. Then better don't be. I think I was thinking about like other serial killers though and how this reminded me of like Golden State Killer yeah, type thing. I was just going to say that who like waits in the closet Eek. until you're asleep. Yes. And I, I kind of kept having that in my head and I thought, well, you know, maybe that's what's kind of keeps this movie alive is that if it is scary at all, mm-hmm. it's that it reminds you of people who actually do what Michael does, yeah. which is just follow you Ugh. and then maybe try to kill you. And it's that's a very real thing. I mean, and if you're going to think of it as not scary, which I do normally do think this film is not scary anymore, it's sort of like an old friend that you visit every Halloween. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it still holds up, in my opinion. Well, because it's so simple, I guess. Even the theme song is simple. Well, and the gore is is very simple, too, because there isn't really that much in there. Mm -mm. But I think that's also why it doesn't scare me, because I'm used to that, like, oversaturation. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, horror has really stepped up in the last a couple of decades, I guess. But. I'm used to seeing more violent acts done to humans. So this doesn't, it sounds kind of funny because this is actually the more believable story, but it doesn't seem as believable. Like if you're going to be terrible enough to kill someone, I feel like you're going to really think it out and you're going to take your time. And if you're going to stalk somebody, you're going to make it really violent and really horrible. And this is just like, like just like that it's over the scariest parts of this film are the parts where michael is stalking them though Mm -hmm. i think yeah 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 and there is one scene that i thought was shot so well and it's towards the end and Lori is standing next to that empty room that's dark oh my god yes yeah yeah i know what you're talking about he very slowly his very pale scary face comes out of the shadow Mm -hmm. and it's so well done and i was like 
oh, that's really scary. Yeah. That is scary. Yeah. That reminds me of like the slow burners that we all love. Yes. And the it's very subtle and quiet and there's no music playing during that part. It seems like that, I think, that really hold up still because a lot of films don't do that anymore. And I think that's kind of what makes Halloween really special. Like you were saying, the whole movie is actually pretty quiet. And Mm -hmm. the sound effects, or the lack thereof, I guess also make it pretty believable because there you know how like in movies you hear like the punching sound effect you don't hear anything like that in here and you you wouldn't hear that in real life like that's not a real sound it's just there for emphasis right but in this film like there's nothing like that michael you hear it when he's stabbing his sister but it's so like it's not like squishy and like blood spurting everywhere it's just very like yeah like the impact of it it's nuts that yeah the simplicity of it is perfect well guys thank you so much for listening to this episode of good morning nancy we are actually going to be doing a patreon review of the new halloween movie yay so if you would like to hear that review hop on to patreon and give five dollars or more a month and you'll be able to hear all of our new reviews including the new halloween film So don't forget to check out our merch shop as well. We've got mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts. So go on over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the t-shirt icon and you will be taken to our shop. Don't forget to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app. It takes just a few minutes to rate and review our show and it really, really helps us out and it helps us get recognition and helps new listeners who are interested in horror to find us. Mm-hmm. And follow us on social media, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Also, tell a friend and spread the word. We love you all to death. Have a great morning. Bye.